You're listening to the Lenses Podcast from Shades Mountain Baptist Church, engaging the world through the lens of the gospel. For more information and resources, visit shades.org slash lenses. We're going to start by praying together or reading scripture together. So I'm going to ask us to stand and we're going to uh, recite this scripture together and then I'm going to open us in prayer. So let us read together. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, We call out to you in our moments of darkness and grief and ask for your help, for your provision. We know that we're not alone because Jesus Christ himself experienced grief on the cross. And we remember that this week as we celebrate his death, burial, and resurrection. I pray that you uh, be with us during this time. Speak through Lisa and uh, teach us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. We live in a culture that has chosen to ignore and avoid two major issues in life, and that's loss and grief. There's nothing heroic or noble about grief. It's painful, it's hard work, and it's a lingering process. But it's necessary when we experience a loss. Grief has been defined as, we'll go there in a minute. Grief has been defined as everything from intense emotional suffering to acute sorrow to deep remorse. And the word grief actually comes from a Latin word that means to burden. Because a lot of times when you're grieving, you feel like you're carrying such a heavy weight or burden that you can hardly put one foot in front of another. The Bible talks about grief. Genesis 6, 6 says he was grieved in his heart. And that's talking about God before the flood. Um, Isaiah 53.3 says Jesus was no stranger to grief because he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Jacob tore his clothes and grieved for many days when he thought his son Joseph had been killed by the wild animals. David cried out, Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would I have died instead of you, O Absalom, my son. Hannah was deeply distressed and grieved and wept bitterly because she could not have children. The whole book of Job talks about grief and loss. And Jesus' mother and his followers all grieved on Good Friday and the day after. But grief is not just the result of death. We grieve over divorce, infertility, an adult child who's a prodigal or rebellious, betrayal like the unfaithfulness of a spouse, a disease diagnosis, cancer, Alzheimer's, or the birth and the long-time care of a special needs child, or just some examples of ways that we grieve other than death. A lot of what we say tonight is going to be based on death, but the same principles apply to any kind of grief that we experience. But death is the common grief, because we all either have had someone significant in our life die, or we're going to have someone die who is significant in our life. I'm not a grief counselor, I'm not a scholarly theologian who has spent years studying grief in various languages, but I have experienced grief. I've experienced more than some of you. I've not experienced as much as some of you. My first life-altering grief was on November 16th, 1989, and it began with the word lisencephaly. 
that I had never heard before. And that's when our 12-week-old son, David, was diagnosed with leucencephaly. We were told his brain was smooth, he had no wrinkles that give you intelligence, and that as long as he lived, he would be like a newborn baby. And he did. He lived for 12 years. He was the size of a 12-year-old, but he was just like he was the day he was born, on the day that he died. And we grieved. We grieved for 12 years with David. My next life-altering grief was not a death. Five years after David was diagnosed, my husband Barry, who was a pastor, had to step away from ministry because of some really terrible decisions. And so not only did we grieve losing a ministry, we lost a job, we lost our house, I lost trust in him, and that was a deep grief. In 2002, David, our son, died. In 2009, Barry, my husband, died of suicide. And then in 2012, I remarried Floyd, a pastor in Shreveport, and 11 months later, he died of aplastic anemia. However, as many of you can say with me, I am not a victim of grief. I am a victor over grief. I don't say that arrogantly, but I say it confidently based on this verse, 1 Corinthians 15, 55 through 57. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Dr. Gerald May says, Grief is neither a problem to be overcome, nor a problem to be solved. And I love this. It is a sacred expression of love, a sacred sorrow. We only grieve because we've been willing to love. And the way out of grief is through it, which means facing it. There's three basic responses that we may have to grief. The first one is stoicism. And that's when I basically deny the reality and I try to live as though it doesn't touch me. I am strong and I can get through this. The next one is emotionalism. And that's the way I grieve at the mercy of my emotions and I just fail to control myself. The third way we can respond to grief is through faithfulness. And that is resting in the God who is there. What's the worst grief? My grief. What's your worst grief? Your grief. When somebody we love dies, or when tragedy strikes somebody we love, or when somebody we love hurts us and causes us grief, we feel that there is nobody who has suffered like we're suffering. We may not even want to talk about how to overcome grief because we feel that it may even deny or minimize how much we're suffering. We just want to wrap ourselves up with memories, even though it hurts. We just want to wrap ourselves up in memories of that person. Grief is a natural and a normal reaction to significant loss, regardless of the expectations of others or even your own expectations of yourself. Significant loss brings grief, and the more devastating the loss, the greater the grief and the longer it's going to take to get through it. Grieving is a process that can't be ignored and it can't be hurried. You can't just get over it, no matter how much you try or how much other people try to tell you to get over it. You must go through it to get beyond it. Grieving is hard work. 
It's harder than you think it can be, and it will last longer than you can imagine that it will, even for Christians. And some of you may not yet have experienced a significant loss. But it's important to be aware of grief for two reasons. First, so that it doesn't catch you off guard when you do experience it. Or you may need to hear about grief so that you can try to understand other people as they're going through it and why they may be acting like they are. For most people during the first few months when you're going through a significant grief, you may wander through any or all of these next four or five things we're going to talk about. The first one is guilt. There's two kinds of guilt. There's false guilt guilt, and there's real guilt. Real guilt comes when we know we've disobeyed God. David experienced real guilt after he ordered the murder of Uriah. But false guilt is a very common and normal reaction to grief. It usually happens in one of two ways. The first one starts when you start the chorus of the if-onlys. If only I had made him go to the doctor earlier. If only I had been a more strict parent. If only I had been a less strict parent. If only, if only, if only. It's false guilt. It's not your fault. Another kind of false guilt may come when we feel relief when somebody has died. If somebody has suffered for a long time and we say, I'm so glad she's out of her pain. And then you get that guilt of, ooh, I just said I'm glad she died. Or after a suicide, there may be relief because you have dealt for years or watched somebody you love deal with years of mental anguish or drug abuse or whatever kind of issues. And you finally can say, I'm glad it's over. And you, guilt may creep in, but that's false guilt. Guilt, whether it's real or false, is too heavy of a burden to carry. And the way to get rid of that guilt, whether it's real or false, is forgiveness. We have to be willing to forgive ourselves And we may have to be willing to forgive other people. Forgiveness is a choice. I cannot always control my circumstances, but I can always control my response. After Barry died, my husband, after he died of suicide, one of the first big emotions that I experienced was guilt. It's like, how did I miss this? How was he so bad that he decided killing himself was better than living and of course I did not intentionally miss anything and whether I did or not it it, it wasn't my fault I had to forgive myself if there was any kind of guilt but I also had to forgive him I had to forgive him for embarrassing our family over the stigma of suicide I had to forgive him for deserting John Chad and me my, my two sons and I I had to forgive him for the reasons for his suicide, which I knew because he had left me a phone message and a note the day that he killed himself. But I learned that forgiveness is freeing. It didn't affect Barry. He's not here. But it totally affected me. So a very common uh, stage of guilt, of grief, is guilt. Another one may be anger. Sometimes that anger may even be aimed toward the person who died. Why did, he, why did he have to get sick and go off and leave us? Or it may be aimed at the person who has hurt you so badly. And it's a perfectly normal reaction. Sometimes the anger looks for a scapegoat. Blame the doctor. Blame the nurses. Blame the hospital. Uh, blame relatives. Blame God. Those feelings aren't new. Think about in the New Testament when Lazarus died and Martha came to meet Jesus. What was the first thing she said? If he had just been here, he wouldn't have died. But what did Jesus do? Did he rebuke her? 
No, we don't think he said anything. He understood she was grieving. She was going through a normal phase of grief. Sometimes fear. How are we going to take care of ourselves? Maybe even fear that I may forget the person who died. Um, Fear can be another very normal stage of grief. And then what's called crazy feelings. We're not going to spend time. I'm going to put a list on the board in just a second. We're not going to spend time walking through these. But the reason I want you to look at these, these are a list made by Dr. H. Norman Wright, who is a crisis Christian crisis counselor, to know how much grief can affect us. Look at all the things that are normal feelings of grief. Everything from distorted thinking patterns, not being able to sleep, nightmares, increase in talking or not talking at all, out of control or numbed emotions, uh, shattered beliefs about the world, even about God. All of these are considered normal reactions to grief, crazy feelings. And the sad thing is, for a non-believer, pretty much this is where grief stops. You just have to hope that you can get through this. But for a Christian, we can go past guilt, anger, fear, crazy feelings. We don't skip them, maybe. We walk through them, and then we have hope. Because for a Christian, even in the midst of grieving, we sooner or later begin to see glimmers of hope. It may be an hour goes by, and we don't think about the person. Then a a day may go by, and we don't think about them. It doesn't just totally dictate everything that we think. We may get a good night's sleep for the first time, or a meal tastes good, or we may laugh and really mean it. It wasn't forced. And verses of hope may come into our mind, and we may even feel some joy. The Bible says we have a God of hope. We get through grief by believing his promises. Hebrew 13.5 says he's going to be with us always and never leave us or forsake us. 1 Peter 5.7, cast our cares and anxieties on him. And Micah 7.8, I love, rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. We have hope because God is with us. And then we walk through maybe guilt, anger, fear, some of these crazy feelings. We have hope, and then we reach contentment. Biblical contentment is a complete confidence in God's total care in the midst of devastating circumstances. Culture breeds and feeds discontentment. But real real contentment involves living so that we are not controlled by circumstances. We have another choice to make. We can choose to forgive or not to forgive. We can choose to be content or we can choose to be discontent. Can't always control my circumstances, but I can always control my response. A Christian author, Lydia Brownback, says, Contentment does not lie around the next corner. It's not waiting for us on the other side of today's difficulty, nor is it lost with yesterday. Contentment is where God is, and God is with us today. If contentment was based on circumstances, I would be a very discontented person. I'll tell you a little secret. I don't like being a widow. I don't like it that my sons don't have a dad, and I don't like it that my grandsons only have one granddaddy. I don't like living by myself, and I would prefer ministering as a couple rather than as a single person. 
And in fact, when Floyd was uh, right before he died, I reminded God several times how much more Floyd and I could do together than I could do by myself. (laughs) And I can spiral down pretty quickly if I start thinking about what I don't have. But I've learned just as quickly to concentrate on all of my blessings. And I can say to you today that I know today I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be, doing exactly what God wants me to do with my family and with Shades, and I'm content. And when somebody asks me, how do you like your new role at Shades? I can honestly say I love it because I have learned to live in contentment, and it's a great place to be. But the journey through grief is not linear, and it's not the little checkboxes that we love so much. We can't say, okay, I'm going to feel guilty for about a month, and I'm going to check it off. Then I might be angry for a little while, and I'll check it off. And then I'll do fear, and I may even pick a crazy feeling or two. Then I'm going to check them off. I'm going to be done with it. I'm going to have hope, contentment, and life is good again. Actually, it's more like climbing a spiral staircase because when we're in the spiral staircase, if we're at the bottom and at the top, We're facing the same direction. And for a Christian, that direction is God. I'm facing toward God at the beginning, and I'm facing God at the end. But suppose that I have some anger, and I'm at the bottom, and then I go up my staircase, then I get about halfway up, and I may have some anger again, but I'm looking at it from a different vantage this time. And I think, I thought I had already dealt with that before. And here it is again. But that's the circular staircase of grief. It comes and it goes and it comes and it goes and we don't just check it off. But the longer time goes and a quote I love that says, it's not time that heals, it's what we do with our time. The longer I concentrate on God and some things we're going to talk about in a minute, ways to work through grief, then I finally get to the top and I'm looking at it from a different vantage And I have walked through all of these grief phases, and I have seen that I have successfully been able to walk through these. I I journaled a lot after Floyd died. And just as an example, I want to read you just a couple of things. I wrote this in January 2014. That would have been eight months after Floyd died. And I was doing really, really well. But this is what I wrote. Grief is so strange. You take several positive steps forward and think the worst is over. Then all of a sudden, your heart is overwhelmingly broken again. Oh, how I miss and love Floyd. I will always be thankful for our time together. I saw a plaque at Hobby Lobby recently that said, A true love story never ends. My life is forever changed because of our love. Floyd is gone, but my life is not over. I will be strong. I will continue to seek God's next step for me, and I will do it. I do not want to miss anything God has for me. That was eight months after he died. This is three years after he died. This was in July 2016. I finally admitted to myself that I really am sad this weekend. This would have been Floyd and my fourth anniversary weekend. Grief is so hard. I'm not going to let myself get down and feel sorry for myself, but it's so hard when others my age are going to the lake or going on trips as couples. Today I read Deuteronomy 8, and I I walk through that and say that it's talking about when you're in the wilderness, how God takes care of you, even to the point, uh, Deuteronomy 8, 4 says that for 40 years their feet did not swell and their shoes did not wear out, and how God 
takes care of you, even in miraculous ways. And then I ended by saying, but I must keep pressing on. I will be obedient. Three years after the death. And it's not that I'm sitting in the house crying all the time. It's just that grief spirals around and it keeps coming back. But every time you're stronger and you face it in a stronger way. It takes time to work through losses. No two people are alike and no two grief situations are identical. Grief is influenced by our family background, by our educational level, by our temperaments, by our culture, and how we have previously grieved. We're going to talk about that in just a second. Our grief work can be immediate or it can be delayed, but we have to do our grief work. And a lot of times when people delay their grief work, it can result in anger or even depression when, when we've stifled doing our grief work. And I have an example of that. When David uh, was diagnosed, as I said, November 16th, 1989, on November 15th, 1989, uh, Barry and I were at the Alabama State Convention, and the very last speaker that night was David Ring, who is a, uh, an evangelist with cerebral palsy. And his sermon that night, God inspired for us to be there. His sermon that night was entitled, Don't Ask Why, Ask What? And he was talking about when bad things happen in your life. We don't ask why. We don't get caught up asking why, why, why. But what am I going to do with this to glorify God? So literally about 14 hours later, we were sitting in Children's Hospital and got the diagnosis of David. And so hearing that David's going to be a newborn baby for all of his life. And so ringing in our ears is, don't ask why, ask what. Don't ask why, ask what. And so remember the three patterns of grief, stoic, emotional, faithful. Number one, stoic, strong Lisa. I can do this. I'm not going to ask why. We are just going to take this and go. And we did. We, we did well. Until, I did well until David was about two years old. And then I hit a wall. I, I can remember saying, I feel like I'm on a merry-go-round that's spinning and I can't, life just feels out of control. And so I <clears throat> started reading some books. I talked to a doctor. I talked to uh, a, a pastor friend of ours and realized I had never let myself grieve. I was so determined that I was going to be strong. I was going to take care of everybody else that I wasn't grieving the fact that my baby was always going to be a baby. It was a true significant loss in life. So, five years later, when the next big grief happened, when Barry had to step away from ministry and we lost everything, I remembered that, and I said the words, I didn't let myself grieve over David, but I'm not doing that again. And so, I let myself be mad as could be at him. I let myself be afraid. I let myself walk through all of these normal and natural stages of grief, and I came out stronger for it. But it was based on how I had previously grieved. I had not grieved well the first time, and so I was able to grieve better the next time. Having faith and hope doesn't mean that we bypass grief, but we work through it and we don't get stuck in it. When we realize that we may be stuck in one of these stages, or if others are concerned, we may be stuck in one of these stages, we need to listen and we need to get professional help to help us work through grief because we know we can get to hope and contentment as a Christian. Anyone who walks through any intense grief experience is never quite the same afterward. He either becomes stronger or weaker, and ultimately he or she chooses which it will be. 
So we have another choice in grief. Are we going to forgive? Are we going to be content? And am I going to come out of this stronger? Or am I going to let it conquer me and I'm going to be weaker? So we can say all of these things about grief. We can talk about how we work through it and how there is hope and contentment. But there's still an elephant in the room. (laughs) Why is there pain and suffering in the world? There was a Barna poll that asked the question, if you could ask God only one question and you knew that he would give you the answer, what would you ask? The most common response was, why is there pain and suffering in the world? Now, for thousands of years, scholars have debated this. There are PhD seminars that are entitled The Problem of Evil and Suffering. Chances are we're not going to completely answer the question in the next two minutes. But there are some things about grief and suffering and pain and evil that, as Christians, we know that affects our grief. Real quickly, we know that God created righteous angels, including Lucifer, Lucifer and other righteous angels angels somehow chose to rebel against God, and then they became Satan and his demons. Scripture addresses when evil came into being, but it never addresses how. For whatever reason, God has chosen to remain silent on that question. We know that Adam and Eve had clear warning from God, but somehow evil entered their hearts. God permitted Satan's presence in the Garden of Eden, and created Adam and Eve with the freedom of choice. So really, we can say the problem of evil is the problem of freedom, the problem of being able to make choices. Without freedom, there would be no evil. So we can go a step farther and say, well, natural disasters and disease can't make choices. They don't have freedom. So why did God create natural disasters and diseases? Well, I don't think he did. A lot of experts believe that the world's original atmosphere was basically covered in an umbrella that protected the inhabitants from harm. But with humanity's fall and the curse, holes got pricked in that umbrella. And so cause and effect since the beginning has created disease and pollution and all the other things that work together to cause suffering and evil. So the pain of suffering points to something deeply and unacceptable flawed about our world. Whenever we're tempted to think that God has messed up our nice world by interjecting evil and suffering into it, we need to remember that, in fact, we messed up God's nice world by interjecting evil and suffering into it. Then he came down and suffered suffered evil at our hands so that we could forever be delivered from the evil that we had interjected into the world. So rather than blaming God, we should be overwhelmed with gratitude that he's provided a way that our suffering is only temporary. We might think that a good and all-powerful God should disarm every shooter. He should prevent every drunk driver from crashing. He should eliminate that extra Down syndrome chromosome. He should get rid of cancer, and he should make our kids act like we brought them up to act. But if God did that, it wouldn't be a real world with consequential choices. It wouldn't be a world of character development or faith building. It would be a world where people went blithely along, living their life, feeling no incentive to turn to God or to consider the gospel or to prepare for eternity. They would live with no sense of need and no sense of God, only to die and find themselves in hell. So we can say, so why doesn't God just make 
my world perfect? Well, he actually has that plan. Someday, this earth is going to be remade into a perfect world. Meanwhile, God is not only preparing a place for us, he's preparing us for that place through our suffering and through our growth and character. So it's a little easier to answer the question, why is there pain and suffering in the world? We can somewhat see the big picture, why there's pain and suffering in the world. The harder question is, why is there pain and suffering in my world? Because the worst grief is my grief. Just a simple little example of that is when David was several years old and he was in the wheelchair and we had had two other sons who were just three and five when he was born. And I specifically remember one afternoon trying to get him loaded in the van. I was the wheelchair. Something was wrong. Anyway, it was just I was in a hurry, I'm sure. And the other two were probably maybe not on their best behavior. Uh, anyway, I just remember it being a crazy time and I couldn't get him in there. And I can remember, I specifically remember thinking, God, I did not plan for this. I can't do what I'm supposed to be doing. I can't minister like I'm supposed to. I can't take care of my family like I'm supposed to. I did not plan for this in my life. And it just hit me like a bolt out of heaven. Do you think anybody plans for bad things to happen to them? And that was one of my most humbling times that this would have been 25 years ago. And I so specifically remembering remember that because what I'm questioning is, Not so much, why is there suffering in the great big world? But why is there suffering in my world? When affliction comes, a weak or a nominal Christian often discovers that his faith doesn't account for it. It doesn't prepare him for it. His faith may have been in his church, in family tradition, or in his own religious ideas, but not in Christ. As he faces pain and suffering, he may in fact lose his faith, a nominal Christian. But genuine faith will be tested by suffering. False faith may be lost in that suffering. Suffering exposes idols in our lives. It uncovers our God substitutes. We may imagine God as our genie who comes to do our bidding, but suffering wakes us up to the fact that we serve him, not he us. Quick fix feelings will never sustain us over the long haul. But deeply rooted beliefs, grounded in scripture, will allow us to persevere and hold on to a faith built on the solid rock of God's word. Tim Keller says, sorry, I'm not good at this. Tim Keller says, if we again ask the question, why does God allow evil and suffering to continue? And we look at the cross of Jesus, we still do not know what the answer is. However, We know what the answer isn't. It can't be that he doesn't love us. It can't be that he's indifferent or detached from our condition. God takes our misery and suffering so seriously that he was willing to take it on himself. So what do we do then with our suffering? If we don't really have the answer, what do we do with our suffering and our grief? The first thing we do is we have to pray and immerse ourselves in scripture. Many times during the first days, weeks, or even months of grief, we are literally in a fog. We simply are going through the motions of living. It's hard enough to exist, much less to pray or to read the Bible. But what I've found is, if you just keep on trying, even when it feels meaningless, eventually 
that fog starts to lift and we actually feel like we're praying. We finally find comfort in God's word. Then prayer and the Bible become our life support. And it's amazing how verses will jump out to you that you think, has that verse always been here? Or it never meant anything to me before. And now all of a sudden, it's like my lifeline. And I learned when that happened to highlight those verses and to date them. And then you can go back and it just reminds you again of the hope that we have in God. And a verse that immediately comes to mind is a peace that passes understanding. I sang that all my life. You know, you have the joy, joy, joy down in my heart. I have the peace that passes understanding down in my heart. And it was just words. But when I finally experienced a peace that you can't explain it's a peace that passes understanding that verse means so much more and so many other verses like that so we have to pray immerse ourselves in the bible whether we feel like it or not and finally finally it seeps through that fog the next thing is we have to trust god We prefer that God would immediately crush and remove suffering and not allow it to hurt us. And because we know that God is all-powerful, we truly may be puzzled why he doesn't demonstrate his power by preventing tragedies and by healing diseases. But power is not God's only attribute. He's also glorified in showing his wisdom, which is best seen over time. Listen to this sentence. Behind almost every human expression of suffering stands the assumption that somehow we know what God should do. I'm going to read that again. Behind almost every human expression of suffering stands the assumption that somehow we know what God should do. But unlike him, we're not all-knowing, all-wise, all-loving, all-powerful, and perfectly good. So as finite and fallen individuals, how can we presume to judge God. We might not know whether it's demons or human genetics or a doctor's bad decision or God's direct hand that may have brought about our grief and suffering, but we know as much as we need to, and that is that God is sovereign and he desires his own purpose in us, and it's our choice if we let him. Although we may define our good in terms of what brings us health and happiness right now, God defines it in terms of what makes us more like Jesus. If God answered all of our prayers to be delivered from grief and suffering, then he would be delivering us from Christ's likeness. What if knowing God and growing in faith and becoming more Christ-like is the point of my existence? What if this life is not about human comfort and happiness? Charles Spurgeon wrote, I am afraid that all the grace that I have got of my comfortable and easy times and happy hours might almost lie on a penny. But the good that I have received from my sorrows and pains and griefs is altogether incalculable. Adversity and suffering can teach us who's in charge. God, not us. They remind us it's time to stop telling God what he should do and start to trust God. And God explains why he takes us through difficulty. Isaiah 48, 10 through 11 Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake. For my own sake, I do it. For how shall my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. For emphasis, notice, he repeats the reason. For his own sake. 
If we don't understand that the universe is about God and his glory and that whatever exalts God's glory works for our good, then we're going to misunderstand this passage and many other passages. And we're going to misunderstand grief. And we're going to continue to live and think that we are entitled to health, to well-behaved, normal children, and that we deserve a good life and family that we've worked and prayed so hard to get. Fire strengthens those it refines. There's a saying among Chinese Christians who suffer through a lot of persecution with remarkable faith, and their saying is, true gold fears no fire. So when we're talking about working through grief, we pray and immerse ourselves in the Bible, we trust God, and we anticipate the new heaven and the new earth. When suffering and evil come our way, they will exert a force that either pushes us away from God or pulls us toward him. I have found a great way to work through grief is to think about what the future holds. Revelation 21, 3 through 5. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. Read about the new heaven and the new earth in Revelation chapters 21 and 22. Picture the most spectacular sight you have ever seen. Picture all the colors. Think about the best tasting food you have ever tasted. Feel how your heart burst with love. And these are all gifts of God as a mere glimpse, like just a little tiny hint of what the new heaven and the new earth are going to be like. We're going to live life. We're going to worship. We're going to talk and eat and play and work and know people. But it's going to be perfect and it's going to last forever. There's a new phrase that I've recently uh, come across. And that phrase is, earth-developed architecture of soul. Earth-developed architecture of soul. What if our life on earth is to develop our soul's capacity to enjoy heaven? What if the way I respond to adversity on earth is developing my soul so that I'll enjoy heaven to a different level. What if that's one of heaven's rewards? Heaven's going to be perfect for everybody. But what if, we don't know what heaven's rewards are. What if some of heaven's rewards are the more Christ-like I have been on earth, the more I can enjoy the blessings of heaven? Just what if? What if that's right? For me, a thousand times yes, it's worth any adversity that I suffer on earth that helps build my character and faithfulness in order for the result to be more in heaven. It's going to be perfect, but what if it can even be perfecter? What if those are the rewards? Who knows? But it's really something worth thinking about. So, we pray and immerse ourselves in the Bible. Trust God. Anticipate the new heaven and the new earth. I have found after each death... I get more and more consumed with heaven because the more you read about heaven, the more exciting it is. And then we share our life with others who suffer and grieve. Suffering and grief are also about others. Our suffering levels the playing field when speaking into others' lives. 
through suffering we become powerless so that we might minister to the powerless. Read this great quote from Randy Alcorn. We like to serve others from the power position. We'd rather be healthy, wealthy, and wise as we reach out to the sick, poor, and ignorant. But people see and hear the gospel best when it comes through those who have known difficulty. Now, this is Randy Alcorn's phrase. Suffering creates a sphere of influence for Christ that we couldn't have otherwise. Some ways I've learned that is through David, our, our son. There's a doctor and a mother who's going to be in heaven because of a little boy who never knew. He, David never knew he existed. He never even responded one time to us in 12 years. But we took him to the doctor, and he said, Y'all just act like you live on this different plane. How do you do that? Sort of an open invitation to share the gospel. Barry was pastor of the church. He later, he and his wife later, joined our church, and Barry baptized that doctor. Uh, we had a dentist in our church, and a lady came, and he invited, came to the dentist, and he invited her to come to church, and she said, I can't come. I've got a two-year-old with cerebral palsy. He's in a wheelchair. He's hard to take care of. He said, our pastor has a child in a wheelchair in the nursery. They'll take care of him. She started coming. Barry baptized that single mom. So because of David, at least two people are going to be in heaven. There's also this ministry at Shades called Hand in Hand. I'm not saying it never would have started if we hadn't had David, but David and Brian Dye were the first two children in the special needs ministry, and we know how many 40, 50, 60 families that Hand in Hand ministers to today. So that was just a legacy of one little boy um, who suffered some adversity, but for heaven's rewards, I think David right now is saying, I think it was worth it because I'm walking now. I'm doing everything that other 12-year-old boys do now in heaven, even more than other 12-year-old boys do on earth. With Barry, the, going through the, the terrible process of suicide has given me a compassion and an, and an opportunity to talk to several people who have had family members who have gone through suicide. I have a new compassion for widows I used to truly think, particularly with older people, that, you know, you know your husband or wife is finally going to die. You know, the, what it's, I know it's sad, but I know now you can just be married 11 months, not 60 years, and you feel like a piece of your body has been amputated. And so it's given me new compassion for ministering to widows. And so that is another way that we can work through grief is sharing our life with others who suffer. When we lock our eyes on our cancer, on our infertility, on our disability, or on our rebellious children, then self-pity and bitterness can creep in. When we spend our days rehearsing the death of our loved one, we can interpret all of life through our suffering. But how much better if we focus on Jesus? There is a great devotional book that I read for two years after Barry died, Streams in the Desert. It's an old book that never had particularly meant anything to me before until I was going through grief. I went through it the first year and marked everything that I liked in blue. Then I went through it the second year and I marked it in a different way. 
And this is something I just want to read to you that sums up grief so well out of uh, Streams in the Desert. It says, All loving Father, sometimes we have walked under starless skies that drip darkness like drenching rain. We despaired from the lack of light from the sun, moon, and stars. The gloomy darkness loomed above us as if it would last forever. And from the dark, there spoke no soothing voice to mend our broken hearts. We would gladly have welcomed even a wild clap of thunder, if only to break the torturing stillness of that mournfully depressing night. Yet, your soft whisper of eternal love spoke more sweetly to our bruised and bleeding souls than any winds. It was your gentle whisper that spoke to us. Listen to this. We were listening, and we heard you. And then we looked and saw your face, which was radiant with the light of your love. And when we heard your voice and saw your face, new life returned to us, just as life returns to withered blossoms that drink the summer rain. Overcoming grief is what we're celebrating on Easter Sunday. And as we claim victory over grief, we are transformed. These are going to sound familiar. What is transformation? It's an inside job with outward changes, orchestrated by God, continuous process, slow and strenuous, limited by your willingness. It will increase your usefulness in God's kingdom. So to sum up, what I want to leave you with is we do not have to be victims of grief. We can be victors over grief through God's power in our lives. Uh, Lisa, thank you so much. Mm-hmm. I, uh, the human condition will say that we are, I'll say for myself, that uh, we want to be secretive and silent over these kind of things, and you've not done so. You've been vulnerable and open, and you've ministered to us, and I'm, I'm so thankful. Uh, we're going to have a time of q and I'm not going to walk around the microphone. Instead, of, uh, you can ask your question, raise your hand. Lisa's going to repeat the question for the sake of the podcast, but we'll have some time for Q&A. If you have to be dismissed to choir or something else, now is probably a, a good time to slip out because we're going to take as much time as we need uh, to answer some of these questions. So if you have a question, raise your hand. Lisa will get to it, and we will move on from there. Any questions? Her question is, when you're going through hard life events, how do you want people around you to act and to treat you? And I wished we had had time to have talked about ways we can minister to others. But I think one of the first ways is you want people to acknowledge your loss. And truly before, I guess really with it was when David died was the first time I realized this that I appreciated so much is when people would talk about him 
one of the favorite cards I got was from someone, and she said, um, what I most remember about David is that the bottom of, of his shoes were always clean because they never touched the ground, of course. But that was somebody who knew David. And I truly used to think if you brought up that person, that it would just make the person who was grieving sad, like, oh, I had forgotten that he had died. I mean, truly, I think I thought that. But I so much would have appreciated when people would come up and say either something about David or Barry or or Floyd, something that they appreciated or liked or a funny story. Um, After uh, Barry died, he taught a a big Sunday school class, and they literally came over a couple of nights later and just told Barry stories. I mean, there's always plenty of Barry stories if you knew him. (laughs) You were in that class, Jane, yes. Just told Barry stories. But even, even still... I get cards from Shreveport, and it would it would be uh, like on Floyd's birthday or maybe when he died or just something happened at the church and just say, I just wanted you to know how much we appreciated Floyd being our pastor for 30 years. It's just acknowledging that person. They're gone, but their memory's not gone. And even if it was a hard death like, like Barry and a suicide, obviously that meant there were other issues, but there were good parts. He was great parts. He had a he was a, a wonderful person. He had some issues that he didn't solve correctly. But remembering who he is and talking about it and just not acting like you're this weird person that you, you can't be around. And I can truly say that people at Shades did not do that. They surround y'all surrounded us and just treated us normally and acknowledged that you're sad and we're here for you. Uh, right after he died for the first several weeks, particularly with Barry, I had some friends who, they didn't just bring food. They would say, we're going to eat tonight. It's like, oh, I don't want to go. We're going to eat tonight. And looking back on it, that was a great thing to do. Cards are wonderful. Again, I used to think if you missed that first week or so, it was too late. Oh, no. Cards, even months later, just to know you're not forgotten, is a great, a great thing. Um, it, some of the other griefs are harder than death in that way because it, it's actually called disen, disenfranchised grief, and it's griefs that you can't or don't just openly acknowledge. Sometimes it may be even the death like of a friend, but, you know, people aren't going to console you like they would family members. Or if it's something like infertility or, you know, so many other griefs that we can suffer through and you don't get that support, and sometimes I think that's harder than the way people respond after death. Does that answer your question? But I think the main thing is just being open and and talking about the person that died. Somebody ever here had their hand raised? The, the question was, how do, you, how do you really find joy? Do you learn it, or where does it come from? The, the first, first piece of that is, I have watched through my younger life some people, uh, some extended family members and other people who were bitter over things that really didn't matter, but they made it a big deal and even 
broke some relationships over things that didn't really matter. And I watched those relationships never mend. And in fact, one of those was our aunt and my brother and sisters and I have said to each other, if we ever start acting like aunt, tell me because I don't want to be that way. And so I've, I've, since a, a young woman, I've been conscious of it's a choice that you can choose to be bitter over things or you can choose not to be. But I think just through the process of life and growing up, it's, it's learned and it's being, it's being educated about it. It's reading, reading books on grief. I, I truly, until David was diagnosed with leucencephaly, I was 33 years old. I had never experienced grief. I, I had had grandparents die, and it was sad, but I had not had life-altering griefs. And once, once I let myself grieve after I was so strong and didn't need to grieve over David, once I let myself grieve and I started reading and realizing how much of, of life, but particularly of grief, is a choice. That it, it's not a choice that you're going to go through some fear and anger and sorrow and some of these crazy feelings. But the choice is, what am I going to do with it? It's my choice if I'm going to get stuck in it or not. And if it's not my choice, like if I'm physically or emotionally stuck, then I need to get help. And, and I did that after David when I realized that things were sort of spinning. And that's when I, it helped me know I just hadn't let myself grieve. So I would say, yes, that joy and contentment for me, has been a learned, very conscious decision of, I got a choice. I can be sad or I cannot be sad. I can be content or I can be not content. I choose contentment and joy. And the more you have it, the more you get. Has been my experience anyway. This question is, when you have a friend that you're trying to, to help that seems to be stuck in one of these stages, what do you do to help, and what's the Holy Spirit's role in this? And if it's your responsibility or their responsibility? Ultimately, it's their responsibility. It's their choice if they're going to become stronger or weaker through it. And again, I'm not a counselor, and I'm, I'm not trained in, in uh, dealing with grief. But from things I've read and from what I've experienced, if a person is stuck, they probably can't get unstuck on their own, and they need help. And uh, I would say the best advice is maybe even to walk through, to just show this is normal. You're going to have anger and grief, uh, anger and fear and you know whatever. Even these, I think this crazy feelings list is good to help you know that I'm not crazy. I'm normal but I'm not going to get stuck there and say this is normal, but it's also normal to work through it. And sometimes we need help. And 
it doesn't necessarily have to be a, a, a paid counselor, but potentially even a pastoral counselor, although you're already at that point, and if that doesn't help, it may need to be a, a professional to just help know the steps, and I don't know what those are. Um, but short of praying for and with that person, if if they're not pursuing working through, you can't do it for them. It is their choice. And they're probably not making that conscious choice of I just want to stay angry. Although you might be, sometimes it just feels good to be mad. And I just want to stay mad because I deserve to be mad. And I'm going to be mad. And that's what happened with my aunt. She thought she deserved to be bitter with her son-in-law. And as a result, she lost the relationship with her daughter because of some ridiculous thing he did. Let me tell you what he did in the 1960s. He grew a beard. (laughs) And it severed a relationship for the rest of their life. And I watched that all of my life. And he was a pastor. Or he was in, he was a, not pastor, but a minister, and he grew a beard, and that a Baptist minister should do that. Something that <laughs> insignificant caused grief for the rest of that family's life, and I saw that, and that's what, how I knew to make the decision, that's not going to be me. But she chose to stay in that bitterness all of her life until she died in her 90s. She chose to do that. And uh, I think he may have grown it longer. <laughs> Yes, sir. The best books I've read on grief. There's a good book called A Grief Disguised, and it's written by a man whose mother, wife, and daughter were killed in a car accident at the same time. That's a good perspective on grief. For me, there's a really great book called uh, It's a uh, The Undistracted Widow. It really is a good book for anybody. It was written by a widow, two widows, but it's a really great book on, on death and, and being a widow. Um, as far as grief, like maybe not necessarily death grief, but just life grief, I had a whole stack of books I was going to bring. The first, truly, the, the, the one that helped me the most was this Dreams Through the Desert. And the reason it helped me was because I got to the, I don't know, after a few months, and it's like, okay, God, I get it. You expect me to be strong. I'm not just this unique person because I'm able to be strong through grief. It is like day after day after day after day of being strong through Christ. This is like my number one go-to book. There's another really good book. It's a more of a technical book, but it's H. Norman Wright, the one that came up with the crazy feelings list, and it's actually called um, Crisis Counseling. But it's not like I'm not smart on counseling, so it's not written. It surely wouldn't be written over your head. <laughs> you could have written the book. Um, it's not written in real technical language, but it's not a devotional book, but it's written by a Christian counselor, and it's really, really, really good. And those are the ones that stand out most. Let me just say this. We are in the process of developing a family ministry website that will probably go live next week. And a lot of that website is going to be resources. And one of the tabs on that site is going to be grief resources. 
And so within, I would say, give us a couple of weeks maybe, we should start getting uh, those things up. The sad thing is there's not a lot of faith-based material on grief. There's a ton of stuff on the internet, internet that's really good and a lot of good books on dealing with grief, and it takes you all the way up through everything except <laughs> your relationship with Christ. But as far as the general things about grief, it's good. But we're even working on coming up with some resources that we've done ourselves, maybe, particularly helping children um, deal with grief. And that's a whole other piece I wish we had had time to, is that children grieve differently than adults. We think they don't grieve because they're running around laughing, but they grieve in little segments about like this of two or three minutes, and then they're done for a while. Or they may bury toys, and they're grieving. Just lots of things to talk about, even about children in grief. But watch for that listing, and that will there will be some good resources. Yes. How do you grieve the loss, or how do you grieve, for instance, a special needs child more differently than you would a death is the question. What I, what I did wrong with David was that I, I stayed in strong mode. Everything was good. I took care of everybody else. Barry grieved. <laughs> the boys were young, so they, they just sort of grieved as the years went by, I think. But not me. I was strong, and I took care of everybody, and I didn't ask why. I asked, what are we going to do, and how are we going to take this and go? And it was more of an em- the emotional part of grief that I just, I never, I never acknowledged to myself that I was mad as I could be. I was mad at God. I mean, all that was wrong with David is that the very tilt end of chromosome 17 didn't finish forming. That was it. There was nothing else wrong with him. But I wouldn't even let myself think. I thought it was wrong to think. Why Why did you do this? Why did you could have kept this from happening? And it wouldn't have changed anything. It just would have changed myself to have realized that God's big enough. It, it's okay if I'm mad at him for a little while because I would have come around and said, I'm never going to understand. I still don't understand. I'll never, I'll never know why children have special needs, why anybody has cancer. I mean, you know, we... We can have that great big answer of pain and suffering, but we don't really know why it has to happen to my child. But just to have, have acknowledged to myself, I'm mad about this. I'm mad. And then the guilt, whether it's real or false, then confess it. I'm mad. I have worked through it. I'm sorry, God. I'm not sorry so much that I questioned why I'm sorry for my lack of faith, you could say, but even that's faith development. It's just, it's, it's just, I think, having that relationship with God that I'm sorry I've been through this. I'm back. I'm back. I don't understand it, but I trust you. If I had just let myself do that, I never even told anybody how hard it was because I'm fine. I'm good. We're doing great. 
and didn't accept help from people because I don't need any help. I can take care of this. So what? I got three boys five years old and under, and one of them is special needs. I don't need any help with this. I just, I, I was stoic, and that was my mistake. And I think just acknowledging this is hard, and I'll take all the help I can get. I don't want sympathy. I don't want sympathy for it, and we're going to use this for God's glory. But it's okay to be sad. Even when he got older, when I finally realized what I had done, and we would be in the hospital, you know, for two or three weeks at a time, and it would be, God, we are drained financially, we're drained emotionally, we're drained physically, we're drained spiritually. I can't do this anymore. And as soon as you admit that to God, somehow you get that, yes, you can, because... I'm going to do it for you. And it happened time after time. Once I was willing to admit that I needed help from God and from others. Does that help at all? Stif- yeah, instead of stifling them. Yes. <laughs> yes, letting people help, right. And people want to help. One time, um, all three of the boys had chicken pox in the same month. The first one got broke out on March 1st and the last David broke out last on March 31st but David was wired so differently you know you run high fever with chicken pox and you break out David broke out on the seventh day he started running fever so of course he hadn't even been able to that was back when he could still swallow he hadn't even had anything to drink so he ends up in the hospital with chicken pox and it got to the point I taught a young adult Sunday school class and I said okay You're either going to have to teach the class or you're going to have to come keep the boys and let me teach. Let me tell you, I had volunteers to come on Sundays and keep the boys (laughs) so that I could come teach. And it's just a matter of letting, letting people help, and that's hard to do sometimes. How do you deal with grief in a family when you're all grieving differently? I'm going to start off by saying, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. I haven't experienced that. Um, Anybody else have a thought? (laughs) Cindy? On, mon- uh, on Monday with Steve Sweat from Community Grief Support Services um, that the more educated people will allow themselves to become because we're all going to fa- face it in some way, that in those cases we need to realize that our, we grieve dif- differently because men and women grieve differently, mm-hmm. but also in your own family, your mother had lost her spouse. Losing your spouse is different from losing your father or losing your brother or your grandparent. Mm -hmm. And so if you're educated and you realize that people, due to their relationship to the person who is deceased, 
what their relationship was, you'll be more tolerant of everyone's um, grief journey and realizing that we all are going to grieve di differently. But just being, ex being educated and being accepting of, of everyone, and it's not all about us mm. and our grief. Yeah, we that's have to reach out yeah. in love to the other members of our family. That's a great point, the being educated. Um, and that's one reason we wanted to do this, I think, Jacob, with a group that wasn't necessarily walking through grief because if you, if you, if you sort of know what to expect, it helps. Of course, that doesn't help in the middle of it or in hindsight, but as far as now being educated about grief. But I think that is, Cindy's answer was great as far as, Everybody has to realize we're grieving differently. It's a different relationship. And that's something through family ministry, again, as time goes on, that we want to be aware of crisis situations like grief and divorce care and several things that we may not be actively ministering to. And in the future, hope we'll be offering some ministries that will help to the community and our church members. So we've kind of landed at a great place in that this is really the next step for where, what the church has. Uh, if you haven't met Cindy Hardy, she's on our encouragement team, specifically uh, the grief outreach. And if you want to get a chance to get to know her, please do so. Uh, as she said here, the grief support ministry, there's flyers here and also uh, the support groups. Grab some information on the back on the way out. Um, we're going to forego our small groups now because our Q&A time was time. so rich and really, really good. And so I'm thankful for that. And I think that was, I'm really glad it worked out the way that it did. Um, uh, let's give thanks to Lisa once again yeah. for her leadership. Okay. Thank you for letting me be here. Um, if you'll stand, we're going to read this closing prayer together and then, uh, and then you'll be dismissed. So let us read together. Heavenly Father, may we know the grief Jesus experienced on our behalf and may we remember the restoration we receive because of that grief. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a great night. We'll see you tomorrow night at Forgotten Man at Table. Take care.